Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Equalizer Project. I am Brenda Ross Doolin, your host. Today, I am excited to welcome our guest, Michael Anderson. Michael is Principal Architect of Anderson Barker, a purpose-driven design firm focused on transforming challenged communities. Michael's purpose is simply this, to confront the systemic longstanding obstacles to economic growth and development of black and brown neighborhoods in Los Angeles and anywhere else in America. In his experience, many of these municipalities are motivated to bring about sustainable change in their communities. However, they often lack the vision, resources, capacity to balance this desire with competing priorities. Michael and his team believe that smart, sensitive planning matched with capital resources can solve the key challenges of rapid urban growth in large metropolises. Anderson Barker brings the expertise to make this happen. With more than 40 years of experience in architecture, urban planning, transit, and community development, Michael has been principal designer for projects in aviation, transit, civic administration, education, housing, and municipal government. Some of his major projects, and he's had many, include the Los Angeles Clippers Arena in Inglewood, California, Hollywood Park, also in Inglewood, California, Tom Bradley Terminal West at Los Angeles International Airport, fondly known as LAX, and the Martin Luther King Jr. Transit Center in Compton, California. Michael actively collaborates with cities to modernize underserved communities to address the wealth gap. Currently, Michael is working on a pilot project to increase home ownership through business strategies that are mutually beneficial to all parties involved. I'm excited to say that Michael is also an author. Michael recently completed a book Urban Magic, Vibrant Black and Brown Communities Are Possible. The book brings together many of the nation's black and brown thought leaders, public policymakers, business leaders, both progressive and conservative, architects, planners, and students in discussions to create what veritably is an operating manual for effectuating extensive change within communities of color. I am excited to welcome Michael to today's program. Hey, Michael, it is so wonderful to have you on the Equalizer Project. Before you got on the recording, if you will, I've taken a a bit of time just to talk extensively um, about your background, how impressive it is, all the things that you um, have accomplished that I could fit within two minutes, which of course wasn't uh, much compared to what you've accomplished. So you and I met, you know, many, many years ago when I was living um, in LA and 
And then uh, we recently reconnected through a mutual friend, Robin Billups, who's also been a guest um, on the podcast, someone that you and I both uh, love and respect. Um, you both are from the same uh, hometown. Yeah. Um, so yeah. you have to talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So tell us a little bit more about yourself, kind of how you're, you know, just how you think about things, anything that you want to share, just kind of give us a bit of backdrop before we get into the nuts and bolts of this. I'm a, well, you know, I'm an architect, but my real passion is urban economic development, especially for black and brown communities. Um, I've, what made me want to become an architect was I happened to live in a great place called Laclede Town in St. Louis, Missouri. Mm-hmm. It was an integrated housing development that was built by a DJ who had half, it was 40% black, 40% white, 5% artists, and 5% international students or international families. And mm-hmm. what was unique was this started construction in 1963 before the civil rights movement. Oh, wow. It was a great place to live. We had summer jobs doing landscape projects. We had a community center. We had a large swimming pool. And it and then a lot of the black folks were single parent families, but the kids mm-hmm. all had a great quality of life and great schools. And that inspired me to want to develop a better place like Laclede Town, mm-hmm. because I saw it as a balanced, how balanced incomes could work. We had a three-story, four-bedroom townhouse. My mother paid $150 for it. This is, again, 1966. And the neighbors next to us who were white paid $350 for the same unit. And the developer just knew you had to make the financial performer work. But his key thing was he knew, since it was subsidized by the federal government, when they blew up Pruitt-Igo, they moved all the residents from Pruitt-Igo into the project, and then it it declined. Everybody moved out. Wow. And so as I lived between St. Louis and New York, it always bothered me seeing poor black kids grow up in poverty. And mm-hmm. I felt it was a economic constructed system that if we could do more developments like Laclede Town and focus on home ownership, we could help eliminate black poverty mm-hmm. and the things that happen because of black poverty, such as crime and everything. And the greatest thing that bothered me most was children growing up in poverty lose hope in terms of what their lives could be at a certain point in time. And I remember an LAUSD teacher saying that kids in LA Unified School District stop being kids when they're 12 years old. Mm -hmm. That's the seventh grade. So that means they have lost any desires. When I was 12 years old, my dreams were like, when am I going to drive a car? When am I going to be able to go out with a girlfriend and stuff without my parents knowing about it? Mm-hmm. These kids are losing hope. And I feel that's a, a failure in many ways on our parts as well to make real economic development happen. And what I mean by that is where our social mm-hmm. and political leadership does a great job politically, but we haven't um, figured out the right deals to make. But I think the Biden administration is looking for it. You know, when they put that out there with the executive order mm-hmm. of the government wanting to reduce racial inequities, it's mm-hmm. kind of like a wake up call for like, Come to us with what's your solutions because we know people are working on some things. It makes so much sense because life isn't just about how the numbers work right now. It really is inspiring a, another generation, right, right. who want to do something greater, who want to have a little bit more. Uh, why do you think that there is still so much focus on mixed income development where, you know, rich, poor middle income, they all are kind of integrated into the same community. I think because change makes a shift 
in people's cash flow. It makes a shift in terms of what they normally expect. And that often is scary to people. It's mm -hmm. one of the reasons why um, when communities get ready to do major changes, there's a lot of pushback. Most of the time in black and brown communities, pushback's rightfully so because the people already there often do not get the benefit of the transformation. They tend to get pushed out. Um, but I think no one's really figured out that deal and that problem in a way that makes continuous succession. The opposite side of what you just said that always bothers me is if you're not nurturing the next generation of the brains that you need and the people you need to make the economic engines for you to have a great quality of life, then when we get out of this game, that quality of life is not going to be that good for us. Yeah. Because yeah. then that's where you see some older Black folks become economically trapped in the communities and they're on a retirement of Social Security they own a house, but there's a vacant property around them. That's like in St. Louis, you saw houses get torn down in the community I grew up in and elderly people become economically trapped because they can't afford to move out. At the same time, that generation that came behind them didn't get the benefits of economic growth and having a stable life that caused the community to die. You talked about how important it is to understand how people of different incomes and backgrounds come together so that we inspire each other and the entire society is better. Yes. A lot of people think about the here and now, but this whole economic development arena is it's long and it's an arduous process. I can't see tomorrow because I'm like weary in the process about how do you actually bring about change, even when people like you come to the table with solutions that can be helpful. So you come as an architect, you brought together these great designs. How do you redevelop uh, communities, these studies on black and brown communities, only for the people you bring it to, to take it and say, oh, that's really nice. Put it on the shelf and walk away. Why do you think that happens? Well, I've had it happen for two reasons. One, I've gotten burned where I've actually got projects funded for the black community only to have a political leader say, oh, we're going to do it our way. And because that that selfish moment retarded the ability to replicate a solution. Right. So yeah. and part of that happens because people are so desperate to get credibility. Um, mm. The um, other side of the equation is I was the author of the Crenshaw LAX TLD study for Metro. We finished that in 2012. None of those visions have been implemented. And often in my 40 plus years of architecture and urban design for doing projects with CRA and others, every time a project's done in a black and brown community, it often never translates to a business plan that makes it an implementable, tangible project. Mm -hmm. And because you never get to that point, even the real estate investment market just basically says it's not going to happen. Now you have an abundance of black and brown capital sources that are looking for deals to do, mm -hmm. but they're not even coming into the market because often when you come to our community, political leadership wants to date the rich people. Um, and what I mean by that is they want to go out, talk about what they're trying to do, go to dinners and things. Inglewood was a case of where this happened before Mayor Butts. There was a lot of dating going on, but no real right. deals going on. Inglewood's $2 billion project that was on hold for seven years captivated $10 billion in private investment in eight years. And so if you recognize the opportunities and you make the right deals, 
and you turn your studies into business plans, which means you have to figure out how the revenue is going to go in, how the investment is going to happen, what the return is going to be, then we can see a transformation of our communities. For me, the riots was a big example of that. My One of my frustrations is looking back, mm-hmm. if you think about the kids that were 12 years old in the riots, and that was 30 years ago, they're right. 42 now, right. probably have kids and have right. grandkids. So when you go back to our earlier part of our conversation, if we had successfully nurtured that generation to make better decisions, to be contributors in terms of making change in their community through real estate, through services and things, but mostly through real estate development, that group would have economically benefited in a way that they would have nurtured the next generation to benefit. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that would help probably more with our housing solution because they were young developers of housing. Well, you know, one of the challenges in business is bringing together the people with what they call the creators with the business people, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and people think about it mostly in entertainment, right? You got the people over in the corner with all the great ideas. And then you got the business people saying, you know, you got to kind of stick to. That's a good analysis. And bringing those two together, particularly in the arena mm-hmm. of economic development, is challenging for all the reasons that you mentioned, because people come with different, you know, agendas. So you have what I think is a unique approach, and that is is very solutions oriented, which is very unique for someone who is a designer and a conceptual thinker, right? Like how do you, how do you imagine what things will be? Who can also be the person who says, you know what? I don't want to just have this pretty thing sitting on the side. I want this thing to happen, right? But you actually go to the municipalities and you have this approach where you actually work with the ones who maybe even have entitled land, right? So let's just try to get all the obstacles out of the way. Let's and you, this is what you have, and this is what you can do with what you have. And you bring those solutions to the table. Talk a little bit about kind of how you got there, how effective that process has been, what the rest of us could actually learn from that way of thinking, because it is, it is unique. I mean, it sounds like very common sense, but it is very unique in the economic development arena. So that was an evolutionary process. So as I said, I did these studies and you've identified land that could be developed. You had what the community vision wanted to be. But then you realize there has to be a real real estate transaction that takes place. In the end, it's got to be a building. Somebody's got to lease it, buy it, absorb Mm -hmm. it. And then that all has to work out in the financial performance. So that's the business deal. Mm -hmm. One of the things that happens in black and brown communities and also communities throughout L.A. is Land entitlement can be a difficult process, right? Mm-hmm. And land entitlements where you change it from one use of zoning to allow you to build something that fits the market rate. One of the things I discovered, Brenda, was we would do these studies or either the community would be fearful of change that they would downzone the properties in black and brown communities, meaning it didn't make economic sense to develop it. In the 90s and early 2000s, black communities wanted more parking than what's going on on the west side. And I was like, you're pricing yourself right out of the market for investment, right? But what happens is those fears lock policies in and the official wants to get reelected and they'll make that a zoning law. That's what motivated me in the end to say, let's just go ahead and be proactive and take the community's vision, turn it into a business plan, but also to make the community comfortable 
take them to a community that has that product and that quality of life. That's really what they're looking for. Mm. And it's funny, I used to take people on tours and, and they were like, oh, I didn't know it could be like this. And then, you know, right. you take them to West Hollywood and show them a four story townhouse development next to some single family houses. It was still elegant. But, you know, black and brown communities often the new housing is low income housing or affordable yeah. housing. Right. So that creates low income impaction and it doesn't make the retail market grow. So all those things are interconnected. But I realized if we had land and title based around the vision that made sense, mm -hmm. then developers, you save them two years of time. You save them millions of dollars of risk, especially in a community that's fearful of change. They're going to come in and buy that land and build the project right away. Mm -hmm. And so it's basically serving as a master plan developer, just mm -hmm. like, I don't know if you're familiar, there's a community called Playa Vista here in L.A., Oh, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, that was master planned by one developer, but all those projects were built by multiple developers, probably dozens of mm -hmm. developers mm -hmm. that came in and said, I want that piece of land. I want that piece of land. But it all added up to this puzzle that made a great quality of life. It has parks in the right area. Right. It has a swimming pool and community. It has expensive housing, middle income housing and affordable housing. That's what we need to do in the reverse in black and brown communities. And once you start doing that, you can guide cities in terms of how to take their surplus land and transform it into an effective use. But the key thing to do is make sure existing residents benefit first. Yeah. And that's one of the things where Black folks don't have the equity to make the investment to match a new development that's coming in, which is why we're working on what's called equity housing. And that's right. where we want to talk about equity. Equity is capital, right? So if right. you don't do a real estate deal, the bank's going to ask you, how much equity do you have if you're going to do a $2 million deal? Mm -hmm. So we're focusing on transforming mom's house into an elegant courtyard fourplex where mm -hmm. she would get about two hundred dollars to $250,000 in federal subsidy if you're black or brown. Mm -hmm. And the reason is that's the government making amends for redlining in the past. Because we know redlining caused this economic inequality. Yeah. The Biden administration wants to do this. So we're saying give mom $250,000. We'll put three prefabricated units in the backyard. And the mm -hmm. purpose of prefabricated is it goes in faster. But these are elegant. These are, I mean, these are the same type of prefabricated houses you see in high-income neighborhoods in Brentwood by the same factory. But what she can do is then rent to her kids mm -hmm. and have her kids and grandkids live on the same lot. And now you have a generational group on the same lot. You can make one unit very low income for that 250,000. She could rent it to a grandparent or, you know, that qualifies as the low income and then rent the other one out to a cousin, or another family member. But what you've done is now you have four black families living on a single family lot and you've raised the average household income on that lot to about 250 to $300,000. Mm -hmm. that's value that grows the market. And it's sort of an economic chemistry. And I know it gets difficult, but that's the economic chemistry that you want to figure out because that's what makes communities grow. One of the things that you and I share is the idea that we have to change the perception of these communities from being purely places for philanthropy. Certainly philanthropy is wonderful. And I think it completely changes lives and changes communities. But when you invest, when you fundamentally change that mindset, then that's when you really have brought about real change in, in the community. You close the gap too, because many in the community don't want redevelopment because they think that they're going to get displaced. Right. There, there will be no wealth left. 
right? If you come in and redevelop, then mom, dad, everybody is going to have to go to the next low income community and relocate. I love yours because of the just building the wealth, building upon wealth that's there. Or what they do is they realize now my house worth a million dollars. I'm going to sell it and go move out to the Inland Empire, buy a house for $500,000 and keep the extra $500,000 in capital gain. But that single family house you just bought, property taxes at $500,000 are tremendously more than what you bought your house at $40,000 back in the 70s. Mm -hmm. So you're going to spend all that on the operating costs and you're going to burn through that extra equity that you have also refurnishing and everything else probably within 10 years. And you're in some ways going to be back to the same quality of life. So the purpose is figure out how to make it beneficial where you are. The beautiful thing about tricking mom's house out with the courtyard fourplex, we call these mom's houses remodeled on steroids. So she has a 1910 Craftsman house. You Mm -hmm. keep the Craftsman house and just do the prefabricated units in the back. Uh, Put solar panels on it. You put water harvesting systems in whenever it rains, you collect the water. You also have gray water piping, which is when you wash and do laundry and things, that water gets stored and used for irrigation and landscaping. That makes it a climate smart product, right? And then with the new homes for your kids, they have the same features. They have solar panels with battery packs. So you run your HVAC and your air conditioning off the batteries to lower your operating costs. And that makes it a climate smart thing. Mm. That gives mom what I call the new Tesla S or either the Mercedes EQS. Right. <laughs> and then mom, and once you do that for one mom, the neighbor's gonna say, I want the same thing. And that's when black folks will start to be mm. acceptance of the change because they see I'm growing just as better mm. as anybody else that moves in the community. New developments have the same feature, but you know, if you're black or brown, you get a half million dollars in federal subsidies. And the purpose is equity becomes 25 to 30% of the debt to, do, to finance the project. Uh, That's what makes the banks attractive. So when I always hear equity housing, equity, I'm like, equity is a person. If it's a $2 million deal, give them a half million dollars. That's equity. That's equity. Right? Right, right, right. the bank's going to give it to them on financing because they have three income units. You Mm -hmm. lose your job. You still have income to pay the debt service. Right. But for Los Angeles as a whole, what we're doing is we're adding three new housing units per lot. So then you start to drill down on solving our housing gap. LA County needs almost a million units of housing today. The city of Los Angeles needs 544,000 units today. Wow. Which is why rents are so high. So your absorption on those deals are going to be easy because of the housing demand. And housing, the lack of housing is what's feeding homelessness. When people get priced out of their houses, they're renting they become homeless. Our homeless population is going to grow by 22,000 next year. And those are the real challenges. So are you able to talk about how those discussions are going, what progress sure. you made in the, in the pilot? I wasn't sure if that was uh, confidential. So where we are in this process is we have a site that we're looking at. It's in an old black and brown community. It's adjacent to one of the original metro stations built in 1990. Mm -hmm. And it still has no transit-oriented development community or quality of life. That was the first metro station. Mm -hmm. But also within that area, we're going to work with neighborhood housing services to identify about 50 existing residents to convert their houses into a fourplex. Because that way, mom and the family people benefit first. 
we want to get funding of about 275 million from the federal government to upgrade the water mains, the sewer systems, mm. put all the power poles underground, to increase the capacity for the community to grow and take those costs out of developers' fees. Mm. So that's what drives up the cost of housing. So we're right. saying, well, look, the federal government has an infrastructure investment act. Let them pay for it. Because mm -hmm. when you tear up the streets and put utilities underground, you then get to rebuild the sidewalks. You can put in shaded trees. You can transform the lights to solar power light fixtures on the residential streets as well as the commercial streets. Mm -hmm. And that way you make the old neighborhood look new. And then you fix up alleys with solutions such as alleys can become play areas because the garages typically back up to it. And right. the garages are the backyard. Then the neighbor's kids can play and you can put remote control gates mm -hmm. at the end to make it safe for people to go in and out of the alley, right? But that's how you layer our communities right. to beautiful quality of life. It also makes jobs because those alley jobs, those can be summertime jobs for kids. And the purpose is if we get kids involved in these, pay them 20, 25 bucks an hour, they're going to go back to school the next year saying, I'm thinking about how I can go back out next year and make mm -hmm. that type of money and help them make better choices. So where we are in the process is, I would say we're at the 100% design development phase, mm -hmm. meaning we've already worked through a lot of the conceptual elements, what the deals are, uh, where the revenue sources can come from. Um, but now we're going to get into full-blown construction documents. We're already building the team. Mm -hmm. But as we go forward with this process, it's 100% transparent. Because, mm -hmm. and I mean that in financial participation and everything, because I don't want any hidden agendas. And also okay. we're going to be using federal funds. I was fortunate enough to meet Secretary Marsha Fudge last week. Oh, wow. I gave this to her. She liked it. She said to me, show me what these houses are you're talking about for, for mom's house. And when she saw it, she liked it. And she said, you know, this is interesting. My, her mother's thing, 90 years old. And she said, my mother said, what can HUD do for me? And I said, and she said, now I see what HUD can do. And HUD funding should be targeted in LA, all funding for middle-class mm -hmm. workforce people to buy these products. Because if right. we can get our workers to purchase a new fourplex, then you're keeping your brain and knowledge in the community, yep. in the county. But yep. also, this is where they came from. Well, you know, you and I talked briefly about trying to bring that concept to a couple of neighborhoods here. Um, right in New Jersey. And, you know, I was just really interested in how we can replicate it and just kind of tracking what you're, what you're doing. And, and do, do you have the private lenders that are kind of at the table as well, or what, what's there? So I met with the San Francisco Federal Reserve Bank and they were like, I figured okay. you might as well go to the cartel. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> and, and they were like, they liked it. Right. And I met with uh, Mary Daly's chief of staff, Adam Healy. They liked it a lot. I met with the community development group. I met with FDIC. All of them like it because they said a person not only has substantial equity, they have three income units. And if they mm -hmm. lose their job or a pandemic happens because of the housing demand in L.A., they will be able to make the debt service. So that they really liked a lot about it. But the purpose of this project is it's to be a replicable process. OK, uh, so. I believe we're considering a company to do what's called an economic assessment. Because uh -huh. in this project, we're talking about the government providing the county of LA up to $45 billion over five to seven years. Oh, wow. Go investment into 18 transit stations. And those transit stations are to be what's called the centers of investment. 
So like if you take Compton, you take parts of Inglewood, you take Crenshaw, Lamer Park, Hyde Park, those mm -hmm. become the centers of investment. And so the economic assessment, I believe, will show our math is like this, where 35 billion would go to 100,000 families around these transit stations. Uh -huh. That would grow about 5,000 new housing units with each half mile to mile radius of a transit station. So if you start uh -huh. multiplying that by 200,000, you got, I think you got about 10 billion in mm -hmm. annual salaries in that radius. And that's what makes the market grow because you've raised the average household income. The tax revenues from the new housing products will generate 2 billion a year to LA County. And that's what the purpose is to show how it can be replicable because you not only help homeowners, you help the municipalities get more revenues. Well, that's the purpose of driving up the average household income mm -hmm. per lot. And then everything just spirals up. And then the other purpose is to show how much money the federal government will make back in GDP just from this process being implemented. Uh, LA County loses about 40 billion a year through the lack of affordable housing. The city of LA loses about 20 billion. So we're saying we start capturing that and multiplying it because we're growing it through the investment. Those are real numbers. And when you go to the larger market, that's what they want to look at, right? Mm -hmm. they, don't, they don't look at it like it's a thousand unit housing project or a public housing. They're going to be looking at it like, well, that area grew by $10 billion in revenue and income right. over 10 years. Let's do it again. One of the major obstacles to overall economic development is really belief in the process that ultimately I won't be hurt by what you're trying to do. But can I share one thing with you, Brenda? Yeah. Uh, so we've pretty much been addressing affordable housing across mm -hmm. the nation the way that we've been doing it since Johnson's War on Poverty. Mm -hmm. We've only focused on low-income housing mm -hmm. as the, how to make a transaction happen. We've never focused on the middle group mm -hmm. that needs so much, which is your tax base. Yeah. Majority of Americans' revenues come from the middle class. So yeah. common sense is you need to grow that group as large as possible. But- that means that's necessary for you to make sure you keep reducing your population of poverty. You can't have poverty growing large enough. Otherwise, you're just going to keep losing revenue and retarding your quality of life. Yeah. And, and uh, unfortunately, the strategies and the programs that have been in place have, have really kind of perpetuated the growth of the lower income, you know, where you were intended to make housing, but you don't you don't make wealth. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and, which is what low-income tax credits kind of nurtured even further, mm -hmm. which is interesting because low-income tax credits came out of cutting funding for mental health, right? That was a Ronald Reagan administration. Mm -hmm. So you have to, so if you look at your society, it's like, okay, you can't just cut something and think it's going to improve something unless you really do the analysis all the way through, right? Mm -hmm. So low-income tax credits still help banks own affordable housing. Mm -hmm. It becomes a real estate asset. Homeownership is the greatest thing that you can have for your society to be successful. Uh, we can go on forever. But. We can go on forever, particularly when I start to think about just conceptually this whole idea of if it does what it's supposed to do, it's supposed to change mindsets, it's supposed to leave these communities better off, the communities and the people there would be left wealthier. You you know, seen, you've seen opportunities yeah. on maps, haven't you? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. The Arts District of Los Angeles is an opportunity zone. Yeah. Right. Oh, and yeah. His billions of dollars in successful investment. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, then the, one of the things where, where opportunity zones are in low-income Black communities, Compton has a huge opportunity zone. 
-hmm. But if you don't have the deals there to drive the capital investment, what difference does it make? Yeah. So we yeah. got to make the deals to make the capital. Got to make the deals. That's the purpose. I really want to start building a project. I'm tired. Yeah. You know, I'm tired no. of talking about it. I'm like, let's no. get the work started. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Let's get going. Let's get the federal yeah. government provide the subsidy and the equity, and do the deal. And, yeah. Um, I'm, yeah. So I'm hoping I can have this elevated as a pilot project under the Biden administration. It's, we have nothing to lose, but we have everything yep. to gain. Yep. Thank yep. you. I, I completely. No, I completely. I, completely I forgot about the book. Yeah. No, no, no. I want to talk um, uh, uh, about the the book. I've just, you know, one or two other questions for you. And mm -hmm. I'm excited. About, so congratulations on the book. I, was it like late? Was it last year? Like July, August. July, August. of uh, Yep. And um, it's really uh, fascinating. It's probably we've talked so much about what may already be um, in the book. But one of the things I'd love to do is we're going to, um, we're looking at a, at least giving away your books oh, as cool. part of this uh, process. So I got to buy them so I can give them away. <laughs> so, okay, thank you so um, much. Because I think this work is is so incredibly important. Just my own philosophy and the work that, that you know, that I've done in the sort of opportunity zone space and just how you really have to believe in leaving wealth in the community and not just putting money there. Anything you want to share about the, uh, about the, the book? Before? Well, the book was basically my way. One, I was frustrated. At first, the book was written from a lot of anger because <laughs> mm -hmm. I got burned so much on projects mm. when I was realizing there's such a strong competitiveness for credibility mm. amongst ourselves. And I was like, you don't really see that. There's so much work to do that everybody's going to do good and be successful but let's just do the first deals correctly. Um, so I wrote the book based on my experience of trying to develop projects in Los Angeles after the riots. Um, I wrote it in terms of why I wanted to become an architect about, you know, trying to solve, design to solve poverty. Mm -hmm. And then I wrote about what I learned from trying to develop those projects and doing the studies. I wrote about what Rebuild LA, how after that got in place, what Rebuild LA did was rebuild a lot of the things that had been damaged after the riots and they did, and they discovered some new industries. Um, but at the same time, it never graduated the community to be prosperous and self-sustaining. Mm -hmm. So here it is, you get an opportunity to get a $500 million from the Clinton administration. You get $5.2 billion from Papa Bush for transit systems and lands. None of that became tangible projects in the Black community. And then the third part of the book is basically how you make a vision plan, transform it into a business plan, hmm. and then how you lobby for money. And you start lobbying money and leveraging money. One of the things I discovered is when a lot of Black communities get funding from one agency, they feel they're okay. But no, mm -hmm. you have to continue to lobby for money and continue to improve your project. I'll give you an example. Santa Monica Boulevard in West Hollywood started from a $150,000 grant. Within three years, they had $15 million to start building the first portion, right? They've put $25 million more into the project over its lifetime constantly re-improving the boulevard because it makes economic growth from mm. La Brea all the way over to Doheny. Uh -huh. We do a project and do some streetscape and put some planter boxes in and say, oh, we did that. And so that's why I wrote the book because rather than have a conversation, I'm like, if you're willing, read it and you can see how 
you can be effective in doing this thing. Mm-hmm. And then understanding that one person is not going to do it. It's going to take a team of people to do it. Mm-hmm. And then once you assemble that team, you have to start building disciples to share the, your knowledge with them. Mm-hmm. So that when you get tired of the improvements you've been working on for 10 years, they have just, they can pick up right where you left off and make it better. And that's one of the things we do not do in politics as well as in some mm-hmm. businesses, nurture the next generation to take over what we've created. So that's yeah. why I wrote the book. Yep. Well, I, I love the fact that you have students involved in it as well. The next generation, you know, at the table with their ideas. Well, I'm going to close with, uh, this is something that I appreciate. So I'm a big uh, believer in quotes and I'm a big believer in songs. So I'm going to ask you about your favorite quote or song, um, because I, I believe that songs and quotes leave messages they inspire and they, you know, create ideas. So this is kind so of funny. Tell me. <laughs> so my famous quote is, it's actually, I have a couple of quotes. Um, Martin Luther King says, whatever affects one directly affects all indirect. This mm. is the interrelated structure of reality. Um, wow. And then the other one was one that Robert F. Kennedy and them used to always quote, where they said, some people look at things and ask why. I look mm-hmm. at things and ask why not. And I learned the person oh. that actually quote was an economist. But I have two songs. The, 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 the loving okay. song is, is Everything Must Change. <laughs> oh, know? wow. Uh-huh. But then there's also uh, the song Jay-Z had in his lyrics, um, OJ. But he says, financial freedom is my only hope. F living rich and dying broke. I bought some artwork for one million. Two years later, that stuff is worth two million. A few years later, that stuff is worth eight million. He didn't say stuff. Uh-huh, yes. I can't wait to give this stuff to my children. He said, you all think I'm bougie, but I'm like, it's fine. I'm trying to give you a million dollars worth of game for $9.99. And so wow. that was for the younger generation. But the purpose is to show how we invest now to nurture that to grow and then how we can give that to our children. Wow. Not just in terms of capital, but in terms of knowledge and skills yeah. and ability mm-hmm. to make a better life. Mm-hmm. Those could be no more perfect quote and no more perfect song that kind of summarizes just oh, you. who you are, what you believe, and and the legacy that you are, you know, that you're creating for yourself. And I feel I feel it's worth it when you hear that because right now it's hard to stay in dreams. Yeah. yeah. Uh, when yeah. you're not getting the abundance of um, capital resources and stuff, but it, it's a good journey. I meet people like you along the way. Yeah. Uh, we're closer than we've ever been before. Um, a lot of people are going to win, especially the children. So uh, it, make, it helps me keep going. Thank you for all that you're doing for, um, for all of our communities and inspiring the next generation and really, you know, leaving everybody better off, which I think is what we all strive to do. So, all right. Well, thank you, Michael. I appreciate your time. Appreciate you. All right. Thank you again for joining us today. We would love to share additional tools and strategies that can help you make the best decisions for your career or to build a dynamic and forward-thinking environment. Please visit the services page on our website, therossdoolinggroup.com.